Monday night. Generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And what were you up to just a little while ago? I was um, chatting with Kim Iverson. The Kim Iverson? The Kim Iverson, yes. Why don't you briefly tell the audience what you were talking about that you think might actually be interesting? Well, generally speaking, when other content creators reach out to us during political season, it's usually about whatever nonsense is going on in Florida. So this was particularly about DeSantis and that he has recently had, I guess, big GOP donors say that they're not going to be donating right now based on his um, de facto abortion ban, as well as the censorship um, issue that they apparently don't like book banning. Go figure. Um, So she wanted to chat about that. Plus, I actually do find it surprising. I thought he was actually seriously considering running. And that was just a very poor move. It's a very unpopular position, even in red places. It's very unpopular. Yeah, he really is. Um, his political instincts have been off a little bit. I, I think. don't know what that's about. Uh, maybe he's just not intending to run. I mean, who the hell knows? And with what just happened in Wisconsin with the change of the Supreme Court, I think we can definitely say that. Uh, maybe he's not reading the tea leaves or he's just concerned about, hey, listen, maybe he changes his mind. And then after 2026, would, would, yeah, it would be 26. Yeah. Well, he's going to wait around four years to run for the U.S. Uh, no, no, I so, don't. Th- although that would be that would be fun. Against uh, Rick Scott. Yeah, yeah but that would be 2030. Yeah. So yeah. Be, no, that, that wouldn't happen. No, not like that anyway. Um, but this was just very, I mean, it was a bad, politically speaking, whether or not you agree with the decision, it's just not a good move strategically. Well, politically speaking, I'm only looking for things that are actually very uh, positive in the sense that it doesn't matter if it's red versus blue. The one thing we do know is that Wisconsin, in particular, is one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Hello, Florida. Hello, Ohio. Hello, New York and a lot of other places. Uh, but gerrymandering has got to go. Voting rights uh, should be automatic. And, of course, um, allowing a woman to choose what to do with her own I, body. Just, I, I, so I would say, you know, just walk around in a woman's shoes for one day, guys, if you could, and uh, you'd probably show up. But would you please share what that statistic was that you had said to me about, like, the percentage of women, how it's divided, and the percentage of men, how well, it's let, divided? Well, let that be the first okay. topic of discussion. Because I find it infuriating. Okay. He is an exceptional writer for the nation, that is. And he is a friend of the show and somebody we always look forward to having on. You know, not a so-called journalist. Not a so-called journalist. We don't have so-called journalists. No, we have the real deal. Yes. John Nichols, welcome back to Generation Change. It's great to be with you. I'm glad I've risen above the uh, zone of so-called. Well, that's, I was just making reference to uh, Matt Taibbi's recent interaction with our esteemed congresswoman yeah, uh, regarding the Twitter files uh, where he was referred to as a so-called journalist. So I... <laughs> I just think you know, it's, it's amazing. amazing. It's like we're, we 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 are we really are past the point of just just the facts, just the facts. Like it doesn't matter. It's like if you're not batting for one team, you're going to get destroyed by either side. And it's just <laughs> oh. that. But the fact is, if you're a journalist and you're doing your job, anybody in power probably should hate you. Like that's kind of like a prerequisite as far as I can tell. Love you, Double And K. our good friend Double K, who is in the, she's either in the Kenosha area or in the Green Bay area, but either way. She she's a fellow she's had with you. Fantastic supporter of the show. Great to see you, Double K. So, John, obviously, what could we say? Um, it was a substantially impressive victory. Obviously, it would have been nice to have Mandela Barnes in the U.S. Senate instead of Mr. Johnson. But, you know, I definitely think that having 
um, the opportunity to unwind a lot of the things that the Koch brothers puppet Scott Walker had been doing for so many years. I think now you're going to have the opportunity to really start to make those amends. Uh, how do you see it unfolding as we go forward? Well, thanks for setting it up so well. Um, because look, we, we all are going to mourn the fact that Ron Johnson is in the Senate for about uh, a little over five and a half more years. Um, but the bottom line is, and I think it's the best place to begin any discussion of Wisconsin, Wisconsin is a true battleground state. It is the truest battleground state in the U.S. Florida used to be that, um, and maybe you will be again. But for the, of the last six presidential elections, Wisconsin has decided them in four cases by under 25,000 votes. You just can't get closer than that. You can't get more competitive than that. In a situation like that, you're going to have good results and bad results, and you're going to look for patterns. The pattern of the last few years, by and large, has been very good for progressives. Uh, they beat Scott Walker in 2018 uh, with Tony Evers, who became governor. In 2018, 2020, and now 2023, they have won Supreme Court races. What that means is that now progressives control the executive branch of state government in Wisconsin, the governorship, and the attorney general's job. They also will, as of August 1, when the court shift takes place, control the judicial branch. That makes it possible, as you suggest, to begin to undo some of the worst damage of Scott Walker's governorship. You're not going to be able to undo everything because you don't control the legislative branch even now. But with control of the executive and the judicial, you can start to do things like look at those gerrymandered maps and perhaps create uh, maps that are fair, that have honest elections for not just U.S. House seats, but also for legislative seats. That could shift control of the legislature, could shift as many as two U.S. House seats. Um, and then you also get a host of other issues. This court was the court that sustained Scott Walker's assault on labor rights. And that's the core, you know, the original sin of Scott Walkerism when he took on public employee unions and, and then later private sector unions. This court can address some of those issues. This court can also, I, I think perhaps most significantly from a political standpoint at this point, address the issue of reproductive rights, because it is very likely that Wisconsin's 19, 1849 ban on abortion will come to this court, this new court. And if it does, uh, there is a, a very good likelihood that they will do the logical thing and throw it out. Um, so a lot has shifted in one election. And for you two, I, I will say, in knowing the, how long you have focused in very frustrating circumstances on electoral politics, um, this is a case where kind of the long game in electoral politics seems to have really played off in one key state or played out in a good way in one key state. Yeah. Well, that's nice for a change, because when you look everywhere else, what we've basically seen has been like the Federalist Society takeover. So it's nice to see um, something going in the other direction. Uh, we're, you know, in Florida, I have little hope for my bodily autonomy here. So well, I, mean, I, I want to wear a handmaid's tail costume. <laughs> well, Wisconsin feels that way right now. You should be clear. Wisconsin is a state that polling suggests is about, you know, 65 to 70% pro-choice. I mean, in, in the classic definition of pro-choice, if you even take the narrower definition of, you know, at least some baseline protections, then you get up into, you know, 80, 90% pro-choice. It's a very, very pro-choice state. And yet 
when the Supreme Court overturned uh, the Roe v. Wade decision and, with the Dobbs decision in June of 2022, Wisconsin ricocheted right back to 1849. That's when our anti-abortion law was was put on the books. And, you know, shame on the legislator, legislatures through the years. They never took it off. So as a result, when that court decision came down, we had this zombie law, you know, from, you know, before women could vote from before the Civil War uh, that suddenly became our uh, defining law as regards to reproductive rights. Only if the court takes this up and throws it out, will it be undone. The legislature's not going to undo it. The governor doesn't have the power to do it. But this shift in control of the court on a- April 4th, when Janet Protosiewicz, a judge from Milwaukee, defeated former Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly, only that shift opens the door for uh, res- restoration of reproductive rights in Wisconsin, and and frankly, uh, a host of other uh, initiatives that that kind of either bring us to or keep us in the 21st century. No pun intended. And you know, I was just thinking, um, you know, Wisconsin has been taking it on the chin for so long. It's such a, I mean. It's the one state in the history of this country that has actually cast their electoral votes for a socialist. The fact that there's just such a, a, a rabid populist streak in this state and it swings both ways. The problem is, is that the undue influence of the Koch brothers in your state in particular has been felt for quite some time. Now, without having to open up old wounds, I look back at the 2016 election. I look at how well Bernie in particular did in Wisconsin. In fact, I felt that his touchstone moment, the moment that really showed he was going to be a real force, was at the beginning of June in 2015 when he held that rally at the University of Wisconsin. About 10,000 people showed up. I think we talked about this. It was it was sort of that moment where you knew something was in the air, something special could happen. And then I look at what happened as a result of that primary and as a result of Hillary being the nominee and the fact that Russ Feingold was not able to beat Ron Johnson, how much of an impact would you say the last seven years, uh, how different it probably would have been? Because I think for all intents and purposes, Bernie almost assuredly would have won Wisconsin over Trump. And even that one electoral shift would have likely resulted in Bernie being the president. How much different do you think Wisconsin would be today if it had more or less like a six, seven year head start compared to where it is right now? Well, Uh, Let me put an exclamation mark on a couple of things you just said. Um, Wisconsin, I think, would have gone for Bernie Sanders if he was the Democratic nominee in 2016. I think it would have gone for Bernie Sanders by a pretty substantial margin because Sanders understood and and was running on the issues of deindustrialization, free trade, uh, and a a whole rubric of economic issues, which... Clinton just was not able to run on effectively. And as a result, um, he would have would have kept a lot of voters who either stood down and didn't vote or who went for Trump. So right off the bat, I think he would have had Wisconsin. But you should also add Michigan into that list as well, because Michigan was another state where Sanders did very, very well in the primaries and then uh, wasn't on the ballot in November. Obviously, he wasn't the nominee. I think he would have carried Michigan as well. So you start to actually begin to understand that if Sanders had been the nominee in 2016, there's a very real chance that Donald Trump would have been beaten and uh, that you would have actually had you know, a very different politics. But in some senses, you have to go back even further for Wisconsin. 
and go back to that 2010 election. In 2010, the Republican wave election, that's the election in which Scott Walker came to power. Scott Walker uh, immediately sought to solidify his power by doing something that we should be very conscious of. He sought to take away the ability of those who might stand up to him to act in the electoral arena, right? He took on public employee unions, dramatically weakened them. Uh, He took on the trial lawyers, dramatically weakened them. You know, he went after basically every institution that might stand up to him. And then they changed the primary election dates so that students, you know, primary elections wouldn't be held when universities were in session. They attacked voting rights. They did radical gerrymandering all within a year, right, in a very short amount of time. And so as a result, they had radically disempowered their opposition. Now, then it didn't matter in 2012, uh, in the November election, Barack Obama won the state easily. Tammy Baldwin won the state easily. But Democrats couldn't win the legislature back. They couldn't, you know, get across the line. And so what you saw was a locking in structurally of barriers to uh, the Democratic Party succeeding. And one of the reasons why that happened was that uh, I would argue Democrats weren't as militant as they needed to be back in 2010, 2011, in that in that very difficult period. They made a lot of mistakes, uh, and many of those mistakes kind of played out into the 2016 election and, and, and beyond. It is, it's, it's really a core question, which I think is one that you, you two understand very, very well. Um, the Democratic Party didn't fight as hard as it needed to fight on fundamental economic and social and racial justice issues when uh, the Republicans were on the rise back in 2010, 2011, 2012. And because there wasn't that united front, because there wasn't a hard enough fight, at that point, the Republicans got a tremendous advantage and they used it at every turn that they could. There's a real lesson here. And that is that centrist politics don't work, right? They, they just don't work when you're in a very, very difficult battle. Now, it is true that, that if you get somebody as bad as Donald Trump in 2020, uh, Joe Biden, who is more of a centrist, could win, yes. But the damage that has occurred up to that point is such that it takes you years, even decades to undo it. And, and this is one of the lessons, I don't know if the Democratic Party is ever gonna learn this. I wrote a book about it, uh, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. And my argument is that this battle for uh, a direction of the Democratic Party, be it either the centrist, very corporate direction or a progressive direction that really is anti-corporate, that really is about, you know, expanding democracy, bringing more people into the game. If you don't take that progressive path, then the Democrats are always going to be, you know, kind of in this vulnerable place. They may win. You know, there's, there's no question. They, they will win in certain circumstances, but they won't win the kind of big victories and take the space that they need to take. And that's writ large across Wisconsin. Now Wisconsin has an opportunity to begin to undo some of the damage that's been done over the last 10, 11, 12, 13 years. But it it won't happen if it's done cautiously, right? It won't happen if they take a, a centrist compromising route. There has to be a recognition that, you know, 
it's, it's not that you have to break any rules. It's not that you have to, you know, be unfair. But what you do have to do is have a set of principles that are clear enough that it actually are sort of like a North Star set of principles that people will come out and vote for it and vote in big numbers for it. And I think that it's a long way of getting back to your core point. Um, had the Democratic Party allowed Bernie Sanders to be the nominee in 2016, I think that that pretty much everything about America's current circumstance would be different. And and frankly, as, as you know from my politics, I think it would be better. I think we would be, you know, nothing would be easy. We wouldn't necessarily have gotten to single-payer health care immediately. We wouldn't necessarily have gotten to free college immediately. Um, but what I can tell you is uh, just think of how much better positioned we would be going into COVID if and when COVID hit, right? How much better prepared we would have been for that. And how when we did respond to COVID, frankly, with a lot of, you know, big government programs, right? Big spending to help people survive uh, instead of then immediately starting to dismantle them as COVID became less of a, a concern, we would have locked many of them in and we'd be in a place now where I think as a country, we'd be headed toward something much closer to social democracy. Yeah, we, we were talking about that fairly recently, that if Bernie had won, he would have absolutely taken the opportunity during COVID to declare like national emergency. Everybody would be getting Medicare and then you try to take it away once everybody has it. He definitely would have handled the student debt thing and he wouldn't have screwed the railroad workers. Like there's definitely certain things that you can look at and be, yeah, that wouldn't have gone that way. Right. Um, and and it, when we talk about the viability of the Democratic Party, they don't seem to win. It's just sometimes the Republicans lose. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like it is intentional. It has to do with the corporatism versus labor. And it is intentional. So it's not like they don't understand and they don't have that. That is the strategy. The strategy is to be myth resistance. They sold our party out to corporations. So, and me, so nope, that's the nope. problem. I, let me let's define that word intentional, because I think it's important here. Um, if we say that the Democrats intend to lose, I would disagree. I don't think they intend to lose. But I do think that they intend to this is the the elites of the Democratic Party. They yeah. intend to never win so big or so aggressively that it would offend their campaign donors. Right. Right. And so um, on balance, Democrats would always like to win. They would like to win every election. But the people who are in these upper levels of the Democratic Party, too frequently in the defining levels, um, they're not willing to you know, kind of cut the ties to corporate donors. And more than that, I think to a, a very narrow vision of what America can and should be. And this has become a huge, huge challenge politically, because imagine this. We are now looking at the 2024 election cycle, and we're looking at polling that says against the likes of Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, the Democrats are only kind of at best holding their own, right? They're, they're, they've wrestled to a tie or maybe maybe a little better than a tie. Maybe, you know, the, they're in a little bit better position than that. But, but this is ridiculous, right? Franklin Roosevelt beat Alf Landon. And by the way, Alf Landon, I take, take you back to 1936. Alf Landon was a pretty moderate, pretty sensible Republican. Franklin Roosevelt beat Wendell Wilkie, who was actually a liberal Republican who was kind of visionary in a lot of ways. 
He even beat Tom Dewey, who took on the mob in New York as the, by the way, at one time as the Manhattan DA. Um, but he beat all these people who are much more mainstream, much more attractive candidates. And he beat them with overwhelming national landslides. Gets oh, out wow. land and he carried all but all but two states. Now, why did he do it? Because he frankly said, as regards corporate power and bankers and and you know the elite interests that have so much influence on our politics, I welcome their hatred. And Americans said, yeah, I would like a president who welcomes the hatred of the bankers. You know, it's amazing when he was president, and you think about how absolutely, you know, you call it the deep South, you call it the racist South, you call it whatever you want, but the Dixiecrats and their domination of the two-party system since the end of the Civil War right through, you know, pretty much Reagan, you know, what you have is a situation where everyone in the country during that particular time period between FDR and JFK they, they looked at it as, well, I may not agree with you on the social issues and on this, and we're going to go through Jim Crow and all that. But when it came to the economic populist issues of the day, the country was unified around it. And that's why you had these unbelievable electoral landslides, even when people were saying that, you know, you're, you're not you're, you're meant to be a president for two terms. That's always been the tradition. Yet FDR kept going. And a lot of the policies under Truman, Eisenhower, and JFK, and even LBJ to a degree, was very reflective in what FDR's vision was and what the country wanted. And I think that the scare within the Democratic establishment has always been the people at the very top and the infrastructure that's been built within the party, the pundits who go on MSNBC and CNN and so forth. It is such a lucrative career. I don't think people even can begin to fathom what it's like. And then you factor in, well, if we are not completely corporate influenced, then if this became the workers' party, we're not going to have these wonderful luxuries that we've been used to for so very long. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that something along those lines is what is just essentially preventing the type of rabid you know, transition that we need. And that's really the scary part about Biden being president, because he's been exceptionally mediocre to say the least that's enough that's that's praiseworthy right there and so at a time when the country really needs a dramatic shift in economic populism mm -hmm. there's a reason why somebody like trump for all of his flaws <laughs> is still considered a potential favorite to be the president again and the fact that ron DeSantis, who governs in a exceptionally authoritarian way mm -hmm. is considered a favorite as well to become the next president that has more to do with what the Democrats are failing to do than what those two guys are doing themselves. Would you agree? Well, I mean, if I would only give you a copy of my book um, because, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's very interesting. When I when I set out to to after Trump's election, I, I wrote a book about Trump uh, and, and his his cabinet. And um, and then, you know, as we as we kind of move through the process. I was really more, I became interested in this question of how did Trump get elected, right? You know, how did that happen? Because this is such a bad player, you know, so easily criticized in so many legitimate ways. And, and initially I started thinking I was going to look at the Republican Party and the generation of the Republican Party. I even had a, a book deal to look at the Republican Party. And I went back to folks and I said, you know, the more I look at this, this is really not a story of the Republican Party. It's a story of the Democratic Party. And 
Um, and then I started to really spend a lot of time looking at, you know, kind of where the Democratic Party went off the rails. And the interesting thing about it is, is that it, you were talking a moment ago about the Dixiecrats and, and the Southerners. Um, you know, Roosevelt wasn't as good as he should have been on race. Um, he made compromises along the way that were, I think, both unnecessary and unwise. So and all these- you can look also at uh, the Japanese internment. You look at a lot of things that Roosevelt got wrong. And I write about that in my book. But the interesting thing was that at the that one of the things he got right was World War II, right? A recognition that you could unite the country against fascism and you could actually get pretty much everybody on board to go beat Hitler. Right. That was that was a remarkable thing. And that unity that was developed during World War II um, could have been the force that you came out of World War II. You came out of that that moment and said, now we're going to solve a lot of other problems. We're going to we're going to get the economics right. We're going to keep a unity of the people. We're going to address Jim Crow segregation. We are going to address the subjugation of women in, in the workplace and other settings. And the person who proposed to do that was Henry Wallace, Roosevelt's vice president. Yeah. And I, I remind people that in 1944, Henry Wallace was seeking a second term as vice president. He came within a, a smidgen, a tiny set of votes at the Democratic National Convention of being renominated for vice president. Had he been renominated for vice president, he would have become president of the United States. He would have become president of the United States as a supporter of economic and social and racial justice. And with a clear vision of maintaining the unity coming out of World War II. And you say, well, how would he have done better than Truman? Well, here's the argument, simple argument. He understood, you know, Truman was thrown into the presidency, had virtually no idea what he was doing, right? And then you had Henry Wallace, who was saying, look, here's what we're gonna do. We are going to create 7 million new jobs, right? We're gonna come out of World War II with a whole program to create ultimately tens of millions of new jobs. We're gonna invest in housing. We're going to invest in programs for the returning GIs. We're gonna invest in programs that make sure that our industries keep functioning. And we're going to do this by promoting as best we can with a recognition that we're dealing with tough other countries around the world, but as best we can, a future that is based on diplomacy and cooperation rather than a new Cold War. And that was controversial. A lot of people didn't like that. I mean, but I would argue that had Wallace been able to maintain that New Deal vision and begin to address some of the deep divisions in the United States around race and around gender and other issues. And I think he could have, and I think he had the vision for it. Um, you wouldn't have had the setbacks that Democrats had in 1946. That means that you would have not have had the Taft-Hartley law. You would have kept strong unions. By keeping strong unions and by actually building and kind of renewing the New Deal in the post-World War II era, I think you had the possibility of an incredible breakthrough. And remember, Britain had that breakthrough. After World War II, what did Britain do? They got national health care. They got, you know, many of the, the programs that to this day define Britain as more of a social welfare state than the United States. So did other countries across Europe and around the world. The United States was that close. And what stopped us from getting there? It was the Democratic Party. 
right? The Democratic Party chose not to take that leap. Now you say, okay, one mistake, 1944, could have done better. No, no. Again and again and again, when progressives stepped forward to try and, you know, and actually sometimes did take leadership, they were dramatically undermined by the corporate interests within the party. Famously, in 1972, when Richard Nixon was running for re-election, George McGovern actually got the nomination as a genuine progressive, right? What happened? Democrats for Nixon. There literally was a national group called Democrats for Nixon that governors and senators and members of the House supported. Democratic leaders actually campaigned against their own candidate, right, to make sure that that didn't happen, right? And so what I would tell you again and again and again is the Democratic Party has undermined its own possibility to become, you know, this party of transformation and a forward-looking party in the United States. And I think that's what Sanders came up against in 2016 and in 2020. Um, and, you know, it is, there are those who will say, well, okay, then why don't you just give up on the Democratic Party, right? Why don't you, you know, look for an alternative? And and I never discourage people from looking at alternatives, right? I think multi-party politics is a very healthy thing. And I, I would love it if America had multi-party politics, but our system is stacked against it. Our system is stacked uh, structurally. Our media is stacked as well. So we end up in a situation where multi-party politics becomes very, very difficult. So really the battle continues for the soul of the Democratic Party. And it is, it is ongoing. It is brutal. Um, the frustrating thing is that while the corporate interests know full well that they are always in a war for the soul of the Democratic Party, uh, I w- worry sometimes that progressives aren't always aware of that. Yeah, the problem is, is that when you've been literally knocked down and beaten down so many times, it's easy. You know, what they expect is that you'll just move along. And what I've said for a lot of the people who were very green, if you will, at the time, I know I was when, I mean, politics was always a part of my life. But, you know, Bernie's run in 2015 was what really got me into this in a very, you know, a deep rooted kind of way. And you learned a lot of things that you didn't like or were never going to like. And so as a result, you can go one of two ways. You're either going to look at the system and say, yeah, it's too corrupt. I can't get involved. Or you learn how the system works and do everything you can to build that cohesive power. The big disconnect that we're seeing today, which Jen and I talk about constantly on this program, is that the only thing that's going to save us in this country is not the Democratic Party. It's the labor movement. Now, If the labor movement happens through the Democratic Party, so be it. We're trying. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get them to get back together with labor. Like that would be the ideal scenario. But I feel like ultimately, you know, that's the problem. And until they really get and I don't mean get back with like union heads, like until they really get with labor, where are they going? Yeah. Well, first off, labor has to be strengthened, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's excess powerlessness in many cases here, right? Where labor has been so beaten down in so many states that um, that it is you you have a rebuilding process that has to occur. Now that should be connected to um, the, the pursuit of power, right? Uh, Democrats want to be militantly pro labor, right? And and you know be there when when labor's in a fight. Uh, obviously, with the situation with the railroad workers, you saw that wasn't the case. Uh, but that's not the only case. You see it again and again and again. Yes. And, you know, it's it's a very interesting thing. 
again, we started talking about Scott Walker in Wisconsin here and, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. We've moved through a lot of other territory, but we can go back to that. Think about this. In 2010, Scott Walker, a very serious, extreme right-wing Republican politician, rides a wave of Republican votes in, a, in the, that cycle, that year, into the governorship of Wisconsin. He gets a legislature that is on his side. What is the first thing he does? The very first thing he does is attack labor, yeah. right? Why did he do that? Because he hates labor? Scott Walker could care less about organized labor. Scott Walker attacked labor because public employee unions, in particular the teachers union and the state workers and county and municipal workers were the backbone of the Democratic Party, right? So he attacked labor because he wanted to weaken the Democratic Party. He knew exactly what he was doing. There was no lack of clarity at all. There was no you know, blinking of the eyes. They were working on that within days after he was elected. Why? Because Wisconsin's a battleground state. If he didn't weaken labor, ultimately the Democrats would come back. Because he weakened labor, the Democrats in some cases still haven't come back as regards to the legislative level in Wisconsin. And no. so it was a brilliant move. And why won't Democrats recognize that on the flip side? When they come to power, shouldn't the very first thing that Democrats do, you know, right once they get in the door, is strengthen those who brought them to power, right? Strengthen labor, strengthen, uh, and yes, work closely with and strengthen civil rights groups and civil liberties groups. You know, there are, there's, there is a rubric of organizations that are supportive of, uh, you know, basically a democratic victory. Now, uh, unfortunately, when Democrats come to power, too frequently in cycle after cycle after cycle, they, if they, they may say the right things about labor, but do they actually do it? And what uh, we see is that they don't. And and in this regard, I'm going to defend Joe Biden. He's better than the, than his predecessors, right? I mean, he's at least somewhat more sympathetic to labor. Than, than some previous Democratic presidents. Look at Bill Clinton. Oh. I mean, I mean, with all due respect, Bill Clinton comes to power in 1992, and he's got this very strongly Democratic Congress. What does he use his power to do? The North American Free Trade Agreement, you know, the GATT yeah. Agreement, moving the U.S. into the WTO. Uh, you know, it's just unbelievable. Who was, one, who was one of the biggest advocates for NAFTA, normal trade relations with China, the crime bill? Yes. Um, I'm just pointing it out. No, no, I no. Your reality I, is that even if it, I mean, listen, Biden is what he is, but I think that the political climate has become so economic populist, you could, ne uh, again, it's like with Wasserman Schultz down here. It's, you know, if if we had the type of campaign when Jen ran in 20 to really inform the public that Wasserman Schultz was at the forefront of pu pushing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to even note something like that today would essentially get you kicked out of public office because the country is just not having that anymore. They're, they're very well aware of the systems that are in place that have completely screwed them over, these free trade agreements. No, the only thing about these trade agreements is how can we more or less crush labor even harder in regards to we want the wages to be as low as can possibly be by making sure that we create a bigger and bigger serfs class. And I do think that there is sort of this 
we had a guest on our show not too long ago. You've probably heard of him, Gavin Mario Wax. He's the head of the New York Young Republicans. He's the one who held that whole rally for Trump in, in Manhattan uh, a little over a week ago. Um, but what was very interesting about the conversation we had with him is that the social issues are going to be what they're going to be. Interestingly enough, he wasn't keen on the whole uh, abortion thing, thinking that a woman should have the right to choose, which I think is definitely more libertarian, libertarian more of a generational thing. But the economic populism, there was a lot of agreement there. And, and I do think that there is something to be said for the ability to divide people on very wedge issue lines. Whereas when we talk about the key core issues, like the fact that Clinton is responsible for NAFTA, normal trade relations with China, the Telecom Act, the crime bill, the worst one of all, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Mm -hmm. When people are aware of these things, they say, I don't give a damn who passed it. I just know it sucks. And mm -hmm. it sucks for labor. It sucks for working people. I, I hear people complain about on the right. I hear people complain about unions all the time. I never hear them complain about labor. And I think the reason that is, is because they associate unions with union bosses and not union rank and file. I think that's the major disconnect. Do you agree? I think that, yeah, I, look, the fact of the matter is that unions and labor, however we say it, it's incredibly popular right now. Right. I mean, that's a, the bottom line. And so I, I don't think we have to make the distinction anymore. The fact of the matter is that polling shows that that unions are more popular right now than they have been, you know, pretty much at any time since the the Great Depression. And so uh, there is simply no question that if you remove the barriers to labor organizing, I mean, we would look like Scandinavia, right? We would have, you know, we'd have unionization all over the place. I I write a lot, uh, and I'm working on a, a book project involving Iceland, and so I'm up in Iceland quite a bit. Uh, you know, in Iceland, everybody's in a union. Oh, yeah. I literally, I literally went to see the northern lights, right, on a boat, right? We go out on a, on a boat at night, you know, oh. into the harbor to see the northern lights. It's, oh. you know, take a break from writing, go, you know, actually look at nature. So I'm out to see the northern lights. I'm talking to the people on the boat. I, I said, you know, like, this is, what's this like, blah, blah, blah. And they, they're, they're all in a union. The people who who you know, like take you out to look at the sky are in unions. Everybody who drives over and and you know they go oh well according to a Scott Walker or a Ron DeSantis or somebody like that that would be that would mean the end of everything right wrong it's socialism it's that's socialism it's a fully functional society right it is it's a very successful society and everybody's in a union now would if we remove the barriers to uh, union organizing in the United States. Would everyone be in the union in the U.S.? Maybe not. I don't know. You know, it's a, I'm not going to go to any prediction, but I can tell you the numbers would skyrocket. And when those numbers skyrocketed, that is where you would begin to see the transformation of states. Yes. Now remember, we are a federal system, so our states are where a lot of stuff matters. And, you know, since, you know, for decades now, the southern states in the United States, right, which have yeah. some of the highest levels of poverty, right, are actually some of the most diverse states in the country have not had strong unions. And what have you ended up with? You've ended up with a situation where uh, they become extremely right wing in their governance, right? That's that's who who's in charge. Well, I, I invite you to think back a little bit on history. 
one of the things that Henry Wallace, and I'm not going to keep referencing Henry Wallace here. But one no, of the it's all good. We're I'm big fans. Yeah. But one of the things that Henry Wallace was very supportive of was something called Operation Dixie. This was an effort by the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, in the immediate aftermath of World War II to send organizers throughout the South to organize multiracial unions, right? To say, we're going to not divide people up. We are going to unite people against the bosses, right? And we're going to organize in the states all over the South. Well, what was the reaction to that? Southern Democrats joined, Southern segregationist Democrats joined with Republicans to pass the Taft-Hartley Act to put all the barriers in the way of organizing unions, right? Mm -hmm. So we ended up in a situation where in the immediate aftermath of World War II, when you had this vision for, you know, really going into the South, organizing people along economic lines, but knocking down those racial barriers and saying people can actually unite together uh, to get better pay, better circumstance, better you know, future for themselves. Um, that was a transformational moment. It had tremendous potential and yet it was blocked. Barriers were put in place. And, and you guys, those barriers still exist to this day. Yeah. Those well, are, I, you know, so why when we elect Democrats to power with overwhelming majorities, and that's not Biden in this situation. Biden's got a very narrow majority. I'm not defending, I'm not giving him excuses here, but he's got a very narrow majority. Why, why when you had Jimmy Carter, in with a very substantial Democratic majority at 77. Why, when you had Bill Clinton with a very substantial majority in 93? Why, when you had Barack Obama with a very substantial majority in 2009? Why didn't you get rid of Taft Hartley? Why not just say, you know, it was passed, it was passed by Congress, you know, why not undo it, right? It's not that hard a thing. And yet, if that had been done by Democratic, or you know, go back to Lyndon Johnson. So we got Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, all with substantial majorities, all with overwhelming majorities. And the one thing they didn't do was get rid of Taft-Hartley. If they had gotten rid of Taft-Hartley, we wouldn't be having this discussion about you know whether unions could be re-energized or you know whether Democrats could be in sync with unions. Um, we'd already be there. And we would also be a, a radically different country because we would have we would never have had the collapse of unions that we saw, you know, really from the, the 1970s onward. So what we're really talking about is that the anti-union South was really just keeping the black people in line from organizing. Well, it was keeping blacks and poor whites from uniting. Right, right, right. It was this notion that you would use uh, so-called right-to-work laws to drive That's a wedge up. between people. Right. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that racism wasn't a real, it wasn't a huge factor, and that racism, look, racism has been a factor in the North and the South, right? It's been a reality that's been used to divide people for a very long time, and it has existed. We shouldn't deny that existence. But what we should recognize is, as Dr. King said, and, and so brilliantly, when he um, when he talked about these issues, he says, you want to see, um, you know, where the segregationist gets involved in politics and gets involved in economics. You look for the right to work laws. Right. That that's they they used the right to work laws yeah. to make sure that you didn't start to build the, the coalitions that might actually undo 
um, you know, the, the horrific legacy of, you know, Jim Crow and, and all that came before it and what has come since it. So the bottom line is that if you and I always go back to King on this because his speeches to AFL-CIO conventions and union. He, King was speaking to union conventions all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look at the 1963 March on Washington, you look at what were the key forces in that march? The chairman of the march was A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a overwhelmingly, all essentially all black union, right? That was part of the AFL-CIO, who was, who was you know, providing you know, huge support for that. The retail, wholesale, and department store unions, a, a left union uh, that had actually taken out many of the, the left unions from in the South and in the North. They were providing critical support through 1199. Uh, what industrial union was there? The United Automobile Workers, Walter Ruther, standing there with King. I mean, this was the moment, right? You were actually seeing a civil rights movement linking to a labor rights movement. And, you know, you go, right, we get to that incredible moment, 1964, where Johnson is elected president, right? He takes over for Kennedy and is elected president. He does a Civil Rights Act. Thank heavens for that. He does Voting Rights Act. Thank heavens for that. He launches a war on poverty. Thank heavens for that. These are good things, right? But why not take that next step and get rid of Taft-Hartley so that people, it isn't just the government, you know, saying, oh, we're going to help you out in this way that people then have the power to organize themselves, right? To organize at the grassroots and make those demands, both of economic power and of political power for more. And the, the tragedy of it is that again and again, we have, we have seen a failure to take that leap and a failure to fill, to fill that gap. And I will argue that as long as, as that continues to be the case, right? then you're con- going to continue to be in this vulnerable and marginal situation where, um, you know, Democrats may come to power, they may hold the power, but look at how narrowly they hold power right now. You know, just, just by a, a, a thin, you know, at the national level, just by the thinnest uh, thread. And you say, well, that's, that isn't going to get you where you need to be, right? You, you have to be talking about trying to achieve so much more, right? And this is how, in my, in my view, we get to economic and social and racial justice. It's how we get to um, preserving the planet, right? And it's frankly how we get to a foreign policy that is more oriented toward diplomacy and cooperation than looking for the next war. Um, I, have, I have maintained for the longest time, um, having lived in the North and the South, that is there is there racism? Yes, absolutely there is. Um, is it anywhere as significant as corporate media in particular likes to make it out to be, not even close. Much like going to a Trump rally that we went to and everyone wants you to believe that every one of them is this raving lunatic, uh, you know, Confederate flag waving type person. That probably makes up five to 10% of the crowd. The other 90 to 95% of the crowd are just regular people like you and me who just have different philosophies about the world and very racially. You know, the deplorables, John. You're familiar with the deplorables. With the racially and cultural diversity that's everywhere, everything is all intersected around labor. And I won't get into really any detail, but let's just say that there there was an incident recently where a powerful person saw the power of a person in labor and felt the need to cut them off at the knees because that's somebody that that person in power fears because labor has real power. 
and labor can really change things. Very often we're distracted by a lot of this, you know, this nonsense that goes on and everyone makes it about, you know, this issue and that issue. When it came to Janet winning the Supreme Court seat, everyone wanted to just focus on abortion rights. And that's significant. And women should have the right to choose. At the end of the day, her victory was infinitely more significant because of the infrastructural change that Wisconsin can ultimately have in the near future, whether it is the gerrymandering, whether it is the voting rights, the things that can really turn that state into the type of rabid populist state that it really is without having all of these, you know, corporatized barriers that have been thrown in their way. And it doesn't matter if it's Democrat or Republican. The Democrats do it to the working class in California. So it's really no different in Wisconsin. It just happens to be the red team that's playing the role there. But when we can unite around organized labor and when we recognize, I tell everybody all the time, if you want to know who the good unions are in this country, just look at the 2016 primary election. The unions that allowed the rank and file to cast their vote for the presidential nomination, cast the vote for Bernie every single time. And every single time, the corporate unions led by the teachers union and the AFL-CIO and a handful of others thrown in, when they let the board choose the nominee, it was always Hillary. That's all you need to know. And so organizing around that very concept that the people with Amazon, with Starbucks, frankly, we really need to see movement with Walmart at this point. It's taken forever. But I really do believe that when we can unite around a living wage, universal health care, paid sick leave, just those three things alone, I think would unite tens of millions of people in this country if we could just get out of our own damn way. And if we could, I think that's what's going to put us you know, on the right footing going forward. It is unfortunate that we're one of the few non-corporate podcasts that really talk about this because it's not sexy, it's not clickbait worthy, but it is very important. And I think that that's the driving force. That's why, you know, the election became yesterday's news like a day or two after it happened. I don't think we can emphasize nearly enough how important that victory in your state is and what it actually means, not just for Wisconsin, but what it could mean for a lot of other states going forward. They see this as a red-blue thing. I see it as an economic populist uprising opportunity, and I do think it's going to happen. And if it's going to happen anywhere, like you said, Wisconsin is one of the best possible places for it to happen. So let me let me uh, address a couple of things you raised there because I think they're very important. First off, I think it's important to recognize that um, that racism is a big deal. And I know you know that. And, but I, I think it's, it's important to, to underline and, and emphasize that the racial divide in America has run deep for a very, very long time. It has been exploited again and again and again. And, uh, and it, is, it, it should not be underestimated. I, I go with the, the view of the labor leaders, the better labor leaders of the 1940s and, and ni- 1930s, 1940s and 1950s, who recognized that it was absolutely essential to oppose racism. Right. And to fight it and to to fight it, not just as something that existed in the moment, but to fight it as something that would invariably be used to divide workers and to divide people in society. And so an understanding of the the role of race and the damaging role that racism has played over a very long time 
is, is a factor in all this that we can't underestimate. And, and I think that what's significant is that unions at their best, not at their worst, but at their best, have recognized this for a very, very long time. And they've recognized that, that if you address these deep divisions, right, and they, they do exist and they are real and they have run for a long time. If you address these divisions by getting people to work together across lines of race, across lines of ethnicity, across lines of region, uh, then you can begin to build something that's dramatically more powerful. And, and so I, I put that just as a, as a marker down because I think it's important to, to what, what, I, what I will then suggest to you. And that is that in these industrialized states of the upper Midwest, uh, and that's Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, historically Ohio, Illinois. Uh, these are states that had a lot of factories, right? This was where you had the steel industry, you had the auto industry, not all of it, but a heavy duty concentration of it. And they were organized by the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And the CIO had a vision for unionization that went uh, across all the sectors of an industry, that united people who, you didn't just have the craft unions and I work in one area, you work in another, we're not working together, we're kind of on our own tracks. Yeah. No, the CIO said, bring the whole factory together. And the CIO also said, bring all the people who work in this industry together. And that means all the immigrants, the CIO used to organize in Youngstown, Ohio, they organized in 24 different languages, 24 different languages, but also to organize people across lines of race, across lines of ethnicity, to build something that was really strong and really united. And the power of what the CIO did was seen, obviously, in the industrial sector, but it was also seen in the political sector. The fact of the matter is that Wisconsin's progressivism was supercharged and enhanced by industrial unionism. Michigan's uh, somewhat less progressive, but still reasonably progressive tradition was super high, supersized and advanced by industrial unionism. And the fact of the matter is that when we recognize that, we recognize how important unions are to building something that is transformational, not just economically, but for society. It's what Dr. King recognized. It's why he worked so closely with unions, even having had the frustrations of it. And so now we get back to take us back the full circle to Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a state where the Koch brothers and the Republicans set out to destroy unions, and they came very close to doing it. They had much more success than, um, than I think we'd like to even give them credit for. It's terrible to say it, but the reality is they obliterated you know, a, lot of, a lot of union power, and they did it in a very short amount of time. And now we have a, an opening in Wisconsin Oh, yeah. An opening in Wisconsin with Janet Prosewitz, who was elected to the Supreme Court, who said that Walker's assaults on unions were unconstitutional. Right. She said that during her campaign. And instead of being rejected by the people of Wisconsin, people said, yeah, that's a, we, we like hearing that. Yep. Right. There's another thing. She marched in the 2011 protests against Walker's proposals. Right. She is not just somebody who is you know, saying in speeches, oh, I'm on your side. She's actually somebody who came out of those struggles. And so this is a really big deal. You now have potentially something that is rare, not just in Wisconsin, but is nationally rare. And that is potentially a Supreme Court that when 
issues of the right to organize and of union rights come before that court instead of rejecting instead of rejecting uh, unions and instead of seeing you know looking for ways to support a Scott Walker and the Republicans in attacking unions that would actually say yeah we think people do have a right to organize we think that that many of your First Amendment rights right uh, are related to your right to talk to your fellow workers to assemble and petition for the redress of grievances to organize right around a, a basic premise that unions have a right to exist and that they have a right to exercise their power both in the workplace and politically. Um, I don't know where we're going to get. I don't know what's going to come of this. But what I do know is that with stronger unions and with stronger progressive unions that actually get what this is about, the potential, the potential for a transformational moment is real. And I get accused of being an optimist all the time. And uh, in fact, I, I was on a radio show the other day and I made the case for optimism. And somebody, somebody literally said, wow, I hadn't heard it put that way. You know, and my argument is this, that, you know, uh, in any situation, there's, there's an argument for being an optimist, there's an argument for being a pessimist. But if you take the pessimist argument, there's a very good chance that you're going to get what you want, right? You know, that you're going to say, oh, yeah, it's very unlikely we're ever going to win. And by gosh, it's going to be the case. Whereas if you, if you go the optimist route, if you say, well, you know, there's at least a chance, right? And I don't mean, I'm much more in Rebecca Solnit's camp, where I would say hope, as opposed to optimism. Optimism, you know, kind of like, you know, you, you believe something's going to work out. Hope means you want things to work out, right? And you're going to aggressively work to do it. So I guess, say I'm less of an optimist and more of, of a hopeful person. But I am hopeful. I am genuinely hopeful that we have so many bold and exciting movements in play right now that are actually mostly driven by very young people, um, young candidates, uh, who are actually trying to address all of the problems of the country right away and who are unsatisfied with a slow, you know, methodical, you know, decade after decade, maybe someday we'll get to an approach. And so we are seeing that on issues of race with Black Lives Matter. We are seeing that on uh, issues of reproductive rights with young women who are literally powering, uh, you know, like these election victories are playing a real role in it. And we are seeing it with a new generation, especially of young people who are saying, I want to be in a union. I want it to be a strong union. I want it to be a militant union that actually fights for, you know, economic justice, that fights for racial justice, that fights for, you know, a, a good approach to climate. And, you know, people are saying, oh, no, 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 we got to, we got to divide all this up, right? No, no, no. We actually can do it all. It, you can put it all together. And, um, you know, Claude Levi Strauss, the great uh, anthropologist uh, who studied, you know, he studied culture, right? He studied society, different societies. And he had this great line where somebody said, he said, people are always asking me, what was the greatest period in history? What was the greatest society to live in? He says, when was it in the past? Right. You know, when did it happen? And or, you know, what is your vision for what it might be in the future? And he's and Claude Bestrell said, I hate both. Those, I hate those questions. He says, because those questions assume that there was some golden age in the past. There wasn't. Right. And it assumes that there's some golden age in the future that maybe someday we'll get there. And he said, no, no, no. What we have to assume is that the golden age is in us. 
that this can be the golden age, that this can be the moment where we put all of the superstitions and the hatreds and the divisions behind us and we say, you know, let's build, let's build a new society. Let's build the new Blake's new Jerusalem in this time. Let's do it now. And what excites me is the impatience of so many of the movement people that we see. And do I think Bernie Sanders had a role in building that impatience? I do. I think Bernie Sanders actually showed generations of young people that it is possible to believe in fixing all the problems now and that one election can matter, that two elections can matter. The bottom line is that you don't give up on that vision. You don't back off on it just because you lost an election. What they mean is you figure out how to win the next one. And my frustration with the Democratic Party is that the Democratic Party too frequently says to these young people, no, you need to temper your, your enthusiasms. You need to dial it down a little bit. You, you need to accept the golden age isn't in us. The golden age isn't now. It's someplace in the future. Just give us some money, give us some volunteer hours, and maybe someday down the line, we'll give you something that you want. Wrong, wrong. What we need is a political movement in this country that says, join us now, and we will win this fight now, and we will implement the fundamental changes that are needed now. We won't put them off, and we won't blink, and we won't stop until we get it. When you have that kind of movement, and I think it's still in the building, it's not there, but when you build that kind of movement with that sort of urgency and that sort of passion, you would be shocked at how quickly fundamental change occurs. And I'll just get to say one last thing in this regard. In 1911, ancient history, 1911 in Wisconsin, progressives came to power. Progressives had the governorship and they had the state legislature. In that one session, they passed so many laws that it literally, it literally filled stacks of statute books. I mean, they overwhelmingly transformed Wisconsin. What did they do? They did workers' compensation. They did protection for women in the workplace. They did you know, bills to, to end you know, all sorts of, of abusive practices in industry, in, in corporate power, with monopolies. They did it all in one year, right? And Wisconsin's progressive reputation, Wisconsin's progressive reputation can literally be traced back to that year. Now, LaFollette did a lot before and he did a lot after. I'm not diminishing. I'm, I'm a historian of this stuff. I respect it all. But I can literally tell you that in a year, Wisconsin had a transformational moment. And there is no reason to believe, as much as I love Wisconsin, that the whole United States can't do that. And so I want that year, you know, and I, I want that year now. And, and anybody who tells me, oh, let's put it off till next year. Let's put it off till the year after. It's just, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because people are suffering now. People are victimized now. And why don't we have a politics that says, we can make your life better now. Yeah, well, we can. I mean, we all know these are policy choices. All of these things, poverty is a policy choice. All of these things are choices. And um, I just think the more that people realize that and the more we educate people, I think that that in conjunction with people like Shama Sawant that are organizing labor and bringing mm -hmm. people together, I think it's all of these things simultaneously happening. That's you right. Know, inside, outside, it's all of it. It's like, I feel like I just throw enough shit against the wall and see what sticks. And well, 
Yeah, go ahead. And this has been obviously always an amazing conversation. Last thought before you go, because it, this does come full circle with where we started. Um, you know, we've been of the mind, um, we've been tracking, you know, Governor DeSantis's trajectory for quite some time. And up until Friday, I actually thought he was going to be the next president. Really? Oh, uh, yes. But his decision to do what he did regarding the six-week abortion ban mm-hmm. and the fact that he did it and attempted to do it with little fanfare. Middle of the night. Yep. Considering what just happened in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. considering what happened in Kentucky, considering mm-hmm. what happened in Kansas, yes. considering what happened in Montana, the second that the American people have the opportunity to vote on a tangible issue, in this case, a woman's right to choose, which keep in mind is two thirds of women in this country believe a woman has the right to choose. Oh, yeah. Oh, what does it say about DeSantis making such a colossal mistake of this magnitude that I don't think people fully realize that he really just aborted, no pun intended, yeah. his presidency? Because this will absolutely not play on the national level. There are things that people could say about Trump regarding the judges that were appointed, but a lot of them were fast tracked. Trump's nicely never taken a real stand on it. And isn't that convenient? And now this is going to allow him that opportunity. There is nothing DeSantis can do to walk away from this. And Trump is trying to run to the left of DeSantis on Medicare and and, and, and those issues, Social Security. So here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. If you want to see the Midwestern version of Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Look at Dan Kelly, the guy that Janet Protosiewicz beat. Yeah. Because Dan Kelly was a former Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin. He was prominent. He had the support of wealthy billionaires who were literally pouring money into his campaign. And he lived within the, the Republican conservative bubble. He believed that he could run as a far-right opponent of abortion rights, of labor rights, of free and fair elections, right? He could do all this and that somehow he would win. And here is the interesting thing about it. Here's the interesting thing about it. He lost by 200,000 votes in a state that often decides presidential elections by under 25,000 votes. And so if you want to see you know, where Ron DeSantis would head as the Republican nominee. Let's say he yeah. beat Trump and he became the Republican nominee. Um, I think he would be wiped out, wiped out in in states across the upper Midwest. Um, and it would be, and you're right, that the choice issue would be a critical one. So yeah. too would his, you know, his basically his disdain for democracy, right? I mean, it which is writ large across his tenure his disdain for working class people and for working class organizations. The fact of the matter is that that um, we've seen this tested and uh, Ron DeSantis wants to run for president of the United States. There's talk that he'll announce in relatively short order. There was once a Republican governor who was much like Ron DeSantis, who did big, bold things, who took on his enemies and treated them with no respect. And he uh, won not just his initial election, but he won a, his re-election. And all of the Republican insiders and all of the Republican pundits, they all said, this guy's got it, right? This guy can translate to the national stage. He's done big things. He's done incredible things in his state. And now he's ready to go national. 
And that guy, Scott Walker, ended up at 0% in the polls. He had to withdraw and end his candidacy because he crashed and burned so hard on the national stage when people got to actually look at him and look at where he was coming from that he couldn't even get to the first primary. And so with all due respect to your your dear friend and governor, Ron DeSantis, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Ron DeSantis is the Scott Walker of 2024. I hope so. I'm not going there, but <laughs> no, no, there's nobody like Scott Walker. He was you really know, terrible. He was terrible. Up then. until terrible this now, one literally. thing, really, he was really kind of looking like politically savvy. I'm thinking, all right, at least there's some sort of, you know, they're playing it very nicely. He's being smart. This is a disaster. I, you, I think you, you're on to something, Jen. But what? I think it really turned when he wore those boots during the flooding. <laughs> the boots? That's what did it for you? The boots? Right, so. We have a lot uh, of other things going on here, not just the censorship, but a lot of criminal justice issues yeah. that yes. he's pushing that are really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, death penalty cases, you well, know, like stuff that's just that's also charged to Conan. about it the other day, and it's, and it, it, you know, you never want to assume the Napoleon complex, but DeSantis is only five foot nine. And, he thinks uh, that that... Look, with all due respect, as somebody who's like five eight, I'm, okay. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to interrupt you there. Yeah, but you're not a <laughs> you're not a, you're not a psychopath. Like it's not just the height, right? It's the height on top of these other sort of psychopathic characteristics. I think well, is what he's focusing on. Yeah, there's always but, something to be said for the the ones who have the Napoleon complex and want to dominate. Because again, he's got a he has. I mean, he served in combat. Let me explain. We're not going to go there because then we'll have to talk about him in Guantanamo Bay. We'll get to that at some point. Look, I will tell you this, and this is probably a good time for us to break and go on to other other issues. But let me just say this. When George W. Bush ran for president of the United States, um, I was so glad that Molly Ivins was around because Molly Ivins from Texas I lived in Texas for that. I was in Texas when that election happened. I lived in San Antonio. And she knew yeah. the real story, right? Now, sadly, she got sick toward the end, uh, you know, it, it, during that battle. And, and we lost her ultimately to in a terrible uh, you know, death to cancer. But um, but I, it was so valuable that Molly Ivins was there to tell us the real story of George W. Bush. And if I can encourage you to do one thing, you know, keep your notes. Right. Uh, be ready to tell the real story of Ron DeSantis, because it's going to matter. I, I actually found myself in this position during the 2016, 2015, 2016 campaign because I could tell the real story of Scott Walker. Right. right? And so those who have been watching a bad player. Right. When that bad player moves to the national stage, they have immense power and important power to speak truth, to tell that the full story. Of, of, you know, the damage done by an individual in a particular state. And so you two have, you two have a job ahead of you, wow. right? And it's an important one because uh, you can alert the United States to the threat that Ron DeSantis poses and remind us when he, when he does these terrible things that really do undermine him politically, but amplify that. So. We tried to. I was actually on with Kim Iverson today talking about it because she she was also very surprised, you know, that mm-hmm. he would do such a it's a bonehead move. 
Um, but it's a bonehead move that you can't walk back. No, no. And that's too big. And it's a required move within the Republican primary cycle. And, and top, so and I, I think that. And on top of everything else, the fact that he chose to do it three days after Prostowitz won her election in Wisconsin, that's that is beyond Napoleonic hubris. Yeah. That's just completely ignoring the tea leaves. He can't, he's not reading the room. But it is the bubble. No, but it is it is that bubble. And I can tell you that in Wisconsin, uh, Dan Kelly could have been far more successful in, in running against Janet Protosiewicz if, if um, he had recognized that many of his stands were incredibly unpopular. Yeah. But when you're in that bubble, you just don't get it. You Either you refuse to recognize it because you're afraid you're gonna lose, or you actually believe it, whichever it is, whichever it is, the bottom line that you have to understand is that that these people aren't going to do it differently. They're going to run the way they run. The only duty that you have is to make sure that everybody in the rest of the country is aware of it, right? And everybody in the rest of the country is paying paying attention to it because you know you're you're the Florida correspondents. It's just it's a rule that well, we don't want, but we'll, we'll, well, have, 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 we'll we will begrudgingly accept. Well, and and we'll be here as long as we're not underwater. And at that point, I am no. scuba certified. But that's we're we're here until south of Lake Okeechobee is dangling off into the Atlantic. But um, thank you so much, John. It's always fun to talk to you. Do you have anything that you're working on right now, or anything like new that you're promoting? Well, I, I wrote a book with Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah. that's right. We've got to read uh, your It's Okay to Be Mad at Capitalism. Okay. Angry about capitalism. I'm angry. angry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm angry. Okay. And uh, it's been fun. It's been fun to talk about that a lot. But um, the the one thing I, I would say, the only thing I'm working on right now um, in, in the immediate moment is uh, trying to figure out uh, whether just how, how bad a Supreme Court justice can be. Um, before well, well, look, you know, I was going to bring it up before when you actually recognize that the First Amendment contain, contains the right to redress grievances. And um, yet in Coney Island, somehow could not manage to remember the five rights granted by the First Amendment. Um, and so I was thinking that, John, maybe that could be something for you because, you know, those freedoms. We need people in judicial positions that know the freedom. And you don't have to have ever litigated a case because yeah. her and Kavanaugh never did. I doubt they're going to make me a Supreme Court justice anytime soon. <laughs> um, the political trajectory allows Jen to potentially... Get into a position of authority one day. You never know, but I do. I do prefer justices that are familiar with the First Amendment. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, well, that's it's, a very low bar to think where we have. That's to. where we are. I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to leap that bar. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much for having thanks, me. It's, it's been a real pleasure. So be well, and we'll be in touch. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. One of our absolute favorites. Oh, always fun. I can talk One to of our absolute favorites. Are no he and Harvey friendly? Are he? I, they are. Yeah. I would. I would think I've so. Got, you know, got like the whole Wisconsin. Could have a but Wisconsin I, but party. There's something about, and now of course I completely forgot that he wrote the book with Bernie. I, I totally forgot about that. That he wrote it with him. Um, that's bonehead. That is bonehead. Well, I wasn't thinking. Clearly, that's the bonehead. So, guys, we well, have a story well, time. Have come on in to talk about the book that I wrote. That book with, with John. It was really good. And you know what we're going to do, John? When you hear about this, we're going to one, one of us probably me read the book. Yeah, because it's always you. No, I read all one. the books. Okay. 
And then we'll have you back on the show again in the month. Uh, yeah, that's great. So, guys, we have a story time. Yeah, we have a story time, all right. This we have is, a story time for you we've guys. We've got a lot to say about this. So, Mario, you've been patient, and it is time for us to talk about the story. So, this story... <laughs> wait. <laughs> no, one more. This story is entitled, My So-Called Congresswoman, A Docudrama Tragedy. Okay, that's where we are. This, this for people who don't know, that is my so-called congresswoman. And this is a story about her. So here we go. Peter, are you going to read it? Guys, follow along. The name of the story is Pizza Parlor Moocharama. Are you going to read it? But don't do it in a weird voice. I, I shouldn't do Bernie or... No, Bernie. no. I mean, I don't think so. I don't think so. Pizza Parlor Moocharama. Pizza was great. Once upon a time, my so-called congresswoman asked the local small pizzeria to cater an event for her. However, the congresswoman it's quoted. was not willing to pay full price for the pizza. Instead, she demanded that the pizzeria cut their prices in half or she would not give them the job after agreeing to. Keep going. Because the owner needed the business, he agreed to her price. The congresswoman miraculously saved $900. The business owner barely broke even. And let us add the PS to that, as we have also now recently come to learn, that they also didn't tip. They didn't tip. She didn't, she didn't tip. This is a local like long time business, small business in Hollywood, in her district, in our district, a small local business in Hollywood. And she's nickel and diming them like a, she's a schnara. You hear me, Debbie? Schnara. She likes to throw around Yiddish words. Try that one for size. I can't even, how dare you? She, and the, and these people are like, this is a small margin, small pizza place. And she's bargaining with them to save $900 on her part and didn't tip. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I hope that people who are local, who want, like, this is the thing. The local people are local party people, the ones that sit there and, like, have their heads all the way up her ass. Do you realize that this is who you're dealing with? Somebody that has no problem just totally screwing over a small business? Never in my life would I ever do that to, to, to a business. And by the way, this is clearly someone who's never worked a job a day in her life. Because if you did, you tip. Okay, people that are working people know that you tip. It's like unbelievable with her. I can't with her. Like when we were told this story by, I, I'm in... Honestly, it's, it's embarrassing for her to some extent, but then I, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate when you hear the stories constantly over time when people say that, well, no, Bernie never had a real job and Bernie doesn't. Listen, whatever you think of Bernie Sanders, he's a public he servant, an advocate for small business, for labor, for a living wage, for health care. Debbie is the complete opposite of all of that. She's anti-labor. She is anti-living wage. Anti-healthcare. And she's anti-healthcare. And she's pro-war and pro-corporatization of her entire economic and- And anti-tip. 
the tipping part. You trashy, trashy woman, you. I just. Mm. The issue with the with the tipping is actually very serious because it, it, it speaks to a much bigger issue here. There is a belief when it comes to tipping, particularly in certain cultures, not ours. Remember, tipping is commonplace in American culture because we simply don't get paid well enough. Right. No, in Europe, that's not, it's not a right. thing. Of course. But one of the reasons why tipping is considered such a novelty for some people is because the fact of the matter is a lot of people like Debbie look down upon working people. They look down on them. Clearly. They don't care for them. They get that from people like the Hillary Clintons of the world who see them as nothing more than an inconvenience. Not true metalopoly. To get what you want. And in this case, what you had is somebody who disrespected somebody who, who has been a pillar of the community for a very long time. It shouldn't matter who it is, though, really. No. Realistically speaking, you go into a small business in your thing and you're wanting to patronize that business to support that business and they barely break even and you save money. How is that any form of leadership or representation? It's disgusting. It really is. It's disgusting. And the fact that you only begrudgingly handed over a tip because you realized just how embarrassing the circumstance was. Keep in mind that from our understanding, this was an order that was placed first and then the haggling began. So they had already accepted the job. And the truth is for a small business, that's a big job. That's a big job. And, and the idea of, you know, being um, ha catering for your local congressperson and it's a good, you know, it's, it's a good thing. But it's let's just say this. This particular business owner did not find it so prestigious that he will be wanting to do that again anytime soon. I don't think anybody would want to do it again. Oh, my the God. The reason why this person confided in Jen is because this person happens to be aware of her and aware, of our, and aware of our podcast and likes what we're doing. And personally asked us to come to the pizzeria. And by the way, and by the way, it's quite good. Excellent pizza. And, and this is coming from somebody who's from New Jersey. It's really good. So my it's standard the fold is in half kind of high. And it's by the slice, like fold in half. And, kind the, of. And, and on top of everything else, yeah. as somebody who worked for many, many years in the service industry, the price is exceptionally low. Yes. Especially for down here. When you consider, and I'm not getting into detail, I'm not saying who it is, I'm not saying where, all I can tell you is that the cost of commercial real estate, where this is located, is not cheap. No, this isn't, this isn't Hollywood. This isn't downtown Hollywood area, not far from one of the circles, um, for people familiar. But it doesn't really matter where, and it doesn't matter any of these things that matter. The point is, is that you were already getting a great deal on however massive of an order you were getting. But that wasn't enough. You needed to get a discount because you are the congresswoman, the leader of the county, and thinking... You're yeah, entitled to just I'm get that. I'm entitled to get that. But see, the way I see it is it's obviously the inverse. You are obligated to set an example 
to be someone who who helps small businesses thrive, to someone who says, you know what, I'm going to show my staff how we treat people here. This is how this goes. And that's something I originally thought, okay, well, it was her staff person and whatever. But the bottom line is you are your staff. You are your staff. You are who you surround yourself with. And anybody that would treat a small business owner like this is not anybody you should have representing you. So this is where I disagree with you. This is all on Debbie. And I'll explain. No, I said it is. No, you're saying that it's the... No, No, I said her staff did it, but it's ultimately her because you are who your staff is. Her staff did it on her behalf. She decided, she called for this. Okay. And the reason I know she called for this is because even though Jen is not a congressional representative... One thing I can assure you that we do know about what it means to be a congressional representative is that they have a substantially large discretionary budget Uh, to spend money on things like food and travel. That is very common when you're a federally elected employee. But that doesn't mean they don't try to still cut corners and screw people, apparently, to still get the biggest bang for your buck. Yushinara. In this case, it's incredibly disgusting because she didn't even have to pay for it. The reason she's doing this is because like a, like a lot of people, you can't expect somebody who has zero ethics to begin with. I mean, listen, Debbie is the Democratic Party champion of America when it comes to insider trading. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that cutting corners and breaking rules, breaking laws, quite frankly, should come as any surprise that she would treat a small business owner with such lack of respect and dignity. I can't. Like this is a, I mean, we've heard of bad stories about her. And here's what I would say. Yeah. Because a lot of people, a lot of bad stories. A lot of people are going to hear about this. I know they are. And people in her circle are going to hear about it. And people that don't like Jen are going to hear about it. And they're going to have to sit on it. And recognize that, you know, what's probably going to happen There's probably another small business owner that's out there that's been that's had to deal with this before. I'm sure this isn't the first time, of course, this type of despicable treatment of workers like abuse. It is abuse. It's abuse. of power. It is abuse of power for sure. And so bully that person might actually build up the courage to potentially reach out to Jen and say, yeah, I dealt with Debbie a few years ago, and this is what she did to our business. Yeah, I'm sure it's the same. This isn't the first time. If you treat businesses like that, that's how you treat businesses. Um, but, you know, I, I just, it's its so shameful. It's just shameful. And on top of everything else, don't forget that when you do this to a small business owner, they are a pillar of the community. They spend money. They have a business that pays taxes that goes back into your community so you can have better schools, better roads, better safety. These things matter, you know, taxes, you know, things that you must pay at the local level and the state level. If you really want to see the value in what having a good local small business does, treat them with the utmost respect because that money is going back into the community. That's why they slip. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of small businesses to run in this country. There's a lot of commercial real estate businesses to be involved in. You know what's the last one you ever want to be involved in? One that involves serving food. Food. Last one all the time. It's a, every time. It's harsh. So to go to that level of depravity, to go after somebody who's serving food to the community, who's serving it at an exceptionally good price, 
and you still pull that shit? Yeah. That's just a reflection of what a completely devoid of empathy, you know, sympathy, and integrity. Metalopoly, one of the things, and we've talked about it all on our show, is that we have closed primaries and that we are a very gerrymandered blue district. So Debbie gets to stay there because you have the only way to beat her is in a primary. And so, and the truth is most people are kind of scared to do it. It's really, you know, daunting. The party does everything they can to fight against you. But the reality is we have what, at best, a 14% voter turnout in a primary. So that means 14% of eligible voters uh, that are Democrats are voting to keep her there. It's it's a small amount of people, but that's what we're fighting. We're fighting voter, lack of voter participation, gerrymandering. And really just, it's, it's not, she's not popular and yet she still sits there. That's why. Closed primaries. Anybody who is going to look at this and either is going to try to find some justification behind what this is. There is no justification. Are you talking about the pizza story still? Yes, I okay. am. Okay. I don't know why you get allow me to. I'm trying to do this, and you're like, no, well, we did it. I didn't realize with Metalopoly. Well, I know, but I, you know, because we talked about it, we addressed it. We're beating no, it now. No, we're not beating it now because the fact is, this is something that I hope gets into people's craws. Because let me tell you something, I have slaved in the in the in the labor force. I've done it for years. Okay, I waited I know tables what it for a long like time. When I remember one night that I worked the table with these four guys that spent several hours and had almost a hundred dollar bill and tipped me four bucks. Let me assure you, it's a pretty empty feeling when that happens because you're working for money. And if there's one thing I know, I was not a good server. I was a great server and I was a great bartender. Of course you are. Because I take good care of my customers. I'm a great driver. And so the person that we dealt with was a great small business owner. Not exaggerating in any capacity. And unfortunately, this comes full circle with this whole conversation about labor in this country. And that's maybe the hardest lesson to learn about why having Debbie Wasserman Schultz as a congresswoman is so bad. Because you can pick a thousand different ways to Sunday in terms of why she's bad. But if you could pick one above all others as to why she's so bad, her tenure in politics has resulted in some of the worst anti-labor pushes within the Democratic Party we've ever seen, ever. And this party goes back to the days of Andrew Jackson. So needless to say, I am ashamed that she's our representative. I am ashamed that she's in any position of power. I'm ashamed for people that will look at her and the anti-Semitic tropes will flow freely. I feel shame because it hurts when you work for the dollar, when you basically have to dance. It's a terrible feeling, a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling of emptiness, because all you're doing is trying to impress somebody who has more money and more influence than you do. That's why we fight for a living wage, for universal health care, for paid sick leave, because everybody who works deserves dignity. Every job matters. Every job makes this country go forward. Everybody deserves to exist without like stressing about how they're going to feed their kids. I guarantee you that this small business owner went home that night and probably cried because of how much money they lost 
to cater to this pathetic excuse for a human being. It's pretty bad. When I heard this story, it hit me in a way that very few ever have regarding her. Because I just know she's detestable. But this is different. This is an apps I really would appreciate if you'd stop doing that for me. I just want you to stay focused on this for me. Because this is really important to me. Okay. It's very important to me. I know. You've been on it for a while now. I, I don't feel the need to get off it right now. I feel okay. that this is something that, you know, we're, we're literally watching our country fall apart every day. We're watching it fall apart in real time. And it literally came and smacked us in the face when we were trying to help a small business on Saturday, which is something we try to do all the time. And all that hard work literally gets shoved right in our face like a freaking anvil to basically remind us of how people at the top truly, utterly hate working people. They hate them. They detest them. And yet, without them, they would have nothing. They couldn't survive. They couldn't make the country move. Labor is what makes this country go. It always has. It always will. AI is not replacing us. There's only so much you can do with robotic cars and toys and shit. Doesn't The human element will always exist. And you will always need people to do things with their hands and their feet and their cars. And the fact that Debbie doesn't appreciate that, the fact that Debbie would do something so brazen and... Because you know it's happened so many times. It has to have. For every rat you see, there's 50 you don't. So that's just common. Like, I, th- I, w- I would venture to say that's their MO. Anytime I see another person, again, down here especially, acknowledge, like, comment in any way, in a considerable way, about our Congresswoman, you're going to deal with me, (laughs) and I'm going to bring this up, among other things. And you're going to have to own it, because this is something that no one would ever want to own if they were being honest with themselves. There's so many things, though. Like, there's, there's so many good. She's a gift that keeps giving in a lot of ways. I might do that, Kay. You never know. And let us not forget that this is somebody who gets driven around with her driver in her nice car, very nice BMW, nothing like crazy extravagant, but it's nice car. No, it was a BMW. And it was a BMW. It's very nice. Again, and I'm not a car person, whatever, but the irony of her having a driver with the license plate that says vote Dem is just, it's just not lost on me. Well, let me assure you, anyone who sees Debbie in a BMW with a license plate that says vote Dem, if that's, you know, you know, they always say it's like ads for like birth control. If there is an ad to vote GOP, that's your ad. That's your ad. Well, I mean, again, she's a gift for a lot of different people. And she is a gift for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, So guys, that's our that's our Debbie tale. Yeah. And I didn't even get like overly heated. I'm just yes, you were like being a little bit crazy. I wasn't remotely surprised, and I do think it's just the way that they do business. That I you didn't just do that once. I was a commuter in college. That's basically oh my way. Good God, let's hear the woe story. I didn't say you know I don't appreciate your we a lot of people worked. I worked in the food industry too. That I this is what this is how I paid my way through college. I didn't get anything. 
So this is what I did. I bartended and I served. And that's how I made my living. I was a Hooters waitress. And you can hula hoop with pouring beer. I can. And yeah, uh, Debbie's a true career politician in every sense of the word. This has been her whole life. This is all she's ever done. And it shows in the worst kind of way. We do not have a schedule yet for Wednesday. But Metal, we can I address the Bernie Three House story just briefly? No, that's not even, but please. It's, is it even really worth it? It is, because Metalopoly is a regular, and he is incorrect about Bernie and his three houses. And I would like to be very clear. Metalopoly. Bernie doesn't really have three houses. I know it sounds like he has three houses. He has a house that he and Jane have lived in forever and a day. Their family house, which is nothing extravagant. Just a, just a regular house. He has a place in D.C. because he spends a lot of time there. So he does have a place in D.C., as do most of the people that are in his position. And the third house that you're so harping that he has three houses was a house that was his wife's parents that they bequeathed to them when they died. And it's their family lake house that was that was bequeathed to them. So if you want to keep harping on Bernie's three houses. That is what you are harping on. It is just very silly. He is hands down, like I think, the poorest person in the Senate. So I, you're just, it's its the wrong tree to go up. That's what I'm saying. Mar-a-Lago is worth about 135 to $150 million. I, I just, Bernie is so not, just, if you want to pick on somebody I, for money in the Senate, Bernie is seriously at the bottom of the Just like enough already. Bottom. It's just such bad. It's, you gotta, you know, you want to say that Bernie has rolled over too hard for the Democratic establishment? Yeah, that's a valid argument. I would go with that one. But to say that Bernie has enjoyed some of the fruits of his labor? And like, but is if that's wow. so bad, again, he didn't take a vow of poverty. Like, but again, that's like, it's like everyone is just, a, first of all, most people who talk about socialism don't understand it, don't even know what it means. But he, he's have, been a public servant. Sure. And he's very popular, by the way. Very popular in Vermont. Well, I also believe that uh, most people would agree, as John Nichols was pointing out, Bernie's co-author, I might say, very important book we're going to read. I will read. Maybe you will too. Uh, countries, in particularly in Scandinavia, they don't have a living. They don't have a living wage because they don't need it. They have almost everyone in a union, right? And everyone is happy there, and they all have health care, and they all have universal education, and they have retirement, and they have paid sick leave and paid uh, ch- paid parental leave, which is a year. Oh, no, 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 no. It's it, in Finland. You actually get up to three years. Um, women get up to three years uh, post child care leave. And it just goes it goes down after the first year, like the percentage. But you go up to three years that you get paid leave in Finland for child care. So I'm, I'm, you know, whole different animal. Definitely agree with you, Guy. It makes no sense. It never did. It never should. No, it's like, and he so flew good. on a, he, he flew first class or whatever. Like he didn't take a vow of poverty. Yes, he is now wealthy. We so, live yeah. in the capitalist system. There's no reason for him to not to participate in it. And yes, he has now had some books, but the man has for the most part been a public servant for the majority of his life. I don't know about you, <laughs> but the fact that Bernie has been in elected office for 42 years. Remember, the night of Reagan's election was also the night of Bernie's mayoral victory in Burlington, Vermont. That's how long he's been in politics. Yes, very long time. But you would think that if somebody like Bernie's been around as long as Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, all these other people, I would venture to guess that Bernie, whose net worth is a few million dollars, maybe three to five, 
Uh, do you know what Mitch McConnell's net worth is? It's over $50 million. Do you know what Nancy Pelosi's net worth is? It's over $120 million. I am willing to bet that their money. How about like Mitt Romney? Mitt Romney a, was a hedge fund multi multi Again, point, okay. point being, Bernie is not like. You're, you're, Bernie never it, went the Obama and Hillary route of giving Wall Street speeches no. for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Bernie's not living in a $14 million estate on Martha's Vineyard. Okay. That's not what he's doing. So, you know, I'm just, again, it's like you're really doing a whataboutism in the complete wrong direction. The problem, I think, at the end of the day, when it comes to Bernie, and I think it is for a lot of people, is simply this. When a person does good, and he does it, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, righteously, there's a lot of people in this country who don't like righteous people because they are weak. And that's why a lot of people hide behind religion, because they say, well, Jesus was perfect. And uh, when I sin, I'm, I'm apologizing because I'm a religious person, because I'm better than everybody else. Now, the fact of the matter is, when Bernie doesn't take the dirty money, when Bernie doesn't succumb to the pressures of the of the system. A lot of people have a lot of sharper daggers for him than they do for a lot of people within the system that are dirty as hell. And why is that? Because a lot of people deep down simply don't have their guile to admit that they're weak and they would give in to the system just the same. But it's like, here's the thing. Why would you criticize someone simply because they have money? Has he done something corrupt? Has he, are those ill-gotten gains? What is it about him having that money that bothers you? Because he, he doesn't, He's never one of the people that's doing insider trading. He's not one of the people that's bought off by we, special interest. But I think we know somebody around here who's into insider trading. He's he's not hanging out on Epstein's island. He's not taking thousands and thousands of dollars of trips from like like what is it about him having a few million dollars that's so upsetting to you when it's not corrupt? Like, I don't understand. Are you saying you're averse to capitalism? Because now we could talk. Well, we're not averse to capitalism, even though we are a small but mighty channel. Well, I'm getting more and more averse to it myself. Go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a wonderful supporter of our wonderful show. Did you feel Every supporter becomes a, yes. Oh, you did. Okay. Lulu sticker for the five dollar entry. Those that are feeling a little bit more generous, <laughs> yeah. we, are we have not changed our opinion, even though we thought DeSantis had a shot. But now, for sure, we are convinced it is Mansion Parliamentarian for twenty twenty four. Yep, ten dollar Mansion Parliamentarian. And right below Jordan Charitons United Corporations of America flag, you will find this wonderful baby. And then, of course, for the very generous twenty five dollar a month. Patrons of our channel. And we I get believe the we generational have... change jersey. Someone was interested in the chat. We do not have a merch store. And yes, we have our website has been taken down because we I am currently being threatened to be sued by Reuters. For, for, for a picture. For a picture we use, guys, wait for it. This is the one they're suing us over. The, Reuters wants $1,400. We act, I didn't know that, I didn't do the website. Like, But the picture that they have their panties and a bunch over is of Chris Smalls. The irony. And, and right, we use this picture of Chris Smalls on our website in our change maker section. And they are threatening they're going to sue me for the money because, and so we've taken down the website because quite honestly, I just don't want to deal with being bitched at by Reuters attorneys. Um, but yeah, it's as like David and Goliath ridiculous as it gets. And I, I just, 
Yeah. So that's why the website is right now not up because I just don't want to be dealing with Reuters. If you are so inclined and you would like to contribute but do not want to put your credit card on the grid, I would suggest you go over to Cash App, dollar sign, Gen Change, and chip in any amount that you can there. Any amount is certainly appreciated. We do not have these shirts right now. Um, I have a few. Yeah, but they're not generational change shirts, and we've talked about this yeah, before. They're not. We don't have the purple shirts right now. So we are, I mean, at some point I would like to order some purple shirts that will just be there, the exact inverse of this. Um, and we're, I'm working on that. We're, yes. we're saving up some money to do some things. We're working on it. And, you know, assuming that I don't have to pay Reuters $1,400, plus, plus I'm sure they're going to try to come after me for their attorney's fees. It's like the most thankless, ridiculous shit that I feel like I do sometimes. You guys have been great. Lively chat. What do we have coming up? We do not have a plan yet for Wednesday. He's really flying by the seat of his pants these days. Trying the best I can. I may have a special guest coming. Ooh, a special guest. Yeah, a hunky special guest. You'll appreciate it. Um, Oh, I I think I know who it is. So you guys will all uh, be around on Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will go with the regular time. Obviously, if somebody like John Nichols says we need to go a little bit earlier to obviously accommodate his needs. We will obviously do that without question. Jen is going to be featured on the Kim Iverson show on an interview that will likely drop either tonight or probably sometime this week for sure. Uh, We might be able to drop that on our channel too. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, We are planning a, we do have Monday night covered for next week. We're going to be speaking with some of our very favorite activists, the Red Berets, led by Laura Fielding. Scott DeSoyners will finally join our podcast for the first time, as well Wait, as who, remind me who that Scott DeSoyners is the gentleman who lost his son. Is uh, that from in a Washington person? Is this uh, what we're talking I think about? He's with? in New York. He's with the New York. Robert Pornespino knows him. Oh, okay, okay. Um, we are going to be talking about the documentary Healing Us. I just watched it, Jen. I will watch it. It's about an hour and 15 minutes. It's very informative. Susan Sarandon is the narrator. A lot of our friends are in it as well. Justin. Okay, so I didn't realize it was a Red Beret thing. Yes. Justin Jackson uh, was interviewed. Um, Amy Valella was interviewed about her daughter. Yeah. It's a very sad state of affairs, but... Uh, Let's also not forget uh, a person that we greatly admire, that we've loved having on our podcast, former uh, Cigna executive Wendell Potter, who is- really Is he coming back too? Uh, I love him. No, I okay. don't think so, but he was okay. featured. Uh, well, I asked Laura to put the panel together. Oh, it's all good. So whoever you would want to have uh, come on and talk about it. Oh, so yeah. that'll be next Monday. Be on the lookout for that. I will be uh, away for a few days. I will actually be in Vegas. No, I'm not going to some bachelor party. I happen to just be- taking a small sabbatical with my father for a few days. Uh, but I will be live from there. We'll figure out what next Wednesday is going to look like. We'll see when Jen's hunky guest will be coming on. I think I know who you're talking about. And then uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the show. Like, subscribe, smash, do all those things that we ask. Go to Jen, go to Cash App and dollar sign Jen Change or go to Patreon.com. Uh, whoever uh, has been requesting um thank you jesus loves his people we really appreciate that <laughs> uh we get a lot of interesting people um double k we will need to hear about that um on the side why you believe that the have been 
They've been very good to us. Well, okay, but this was made for me by Fran. She made it for me when I was running. So, yes. and and so I kind of, I think it's a bug. And so it's pretty emphatic. Yeah, and and so it's kind of just a personal thing that they they made for me when I was running. And you know, I do support the concept of healthcare. We we can get into the politics of the organization at another point in time. Yeah, and the last thing we will mention, um, as was brought up by Metalopoly, listen, here's all we're going to say regarding the riots that just happened in Chicago the other day. If there's one thing one can understand about the history of this country, particularly when somebody who was elected on a grassroots anti-corporate platform into the third largest city in the country and in a city that is in the upper Midwest, where a lot of these things tend to happen in terms of the grassroots labor movements, do not think for a second that the corporate establishment is not going to try every which way to make Brandon Johnson look like an incompetent mayor, look like a corrupt failure. They will try everything. Now, do I believe that there is a way to address this particular issue without just completely losing the plot? Yes, I do. And so be on the lookout for these constant stories that are now going to be highlighted. Like false flags. At the exp- it's not necessarily false well, flags. Well, it, it is. There. Well, The point is, is that this type of stuff happens in Chicago a lot. But now you're going to be hearing about it. Why? Because the person who's running the city is not answering to corporate special interests. So what are they going to do? They're going to try to make him a failure of a mayor as fast as humanly possible. That's the goal. That is the goal. You think that shit that happened the other day wasn't happening under Lori Lightfoot? Of course it was. It happens all the time. Chicago is one of the, the southwest and southeast side of Chicago is some of the most dangerous places in the whole country. It's gang heaven. There's a reason why things are so bad. But you know where things aren't bad in Chicago? Jen went to Northwestern. I did. The northern part of the city the northern suburbs, some of the most affluent suburbs in the world. That's capitalism. When one hole gets broken, another gets filled up. There's no balance. When you have too much of something, there's somebody on the other side who has a little of nothing. Well, that's the thing in all these, like, you know, blue coastal elite city places is they have such bad crime because they have such horrid income inequality. It's not, it's not that there's really wealthy people. It's the income and the wealth inequality. And the places that have the highest amount of income inequality are going to have the worst crime. And we are the first people, as you guys know, we are a true progressive populist channel that doesn't go to the knee-jerk reaction of, oh, it's just the guns, and if you get the guns oh, away, no. that'll solve the problem. No, 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 no. Let me no. tell you something. We're this close to people taking grenades and start using them, okay? When people have nothing and they get restless and social media whips people up into a frenzy, yeah, that's what's going to So happen. anybody, yeah, when we have people on this that, are, that have been following us that tend to be either, you know, what you would say, right, Republican, conservative, libertarian, whatever, um, I've been very clear about that I don't have a problem with the Second Amendment. I also don't support bans, and I also don't support mandates. Um, I'm very, very civil libertarian. I am very live and let live. 
uh, and that includes guns. I also think that 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 ship has sailed. There are already more guns than people. So it's it's like to deal with it from a practical. I am a person that likes to deal with things based on reason, facts, numbers, history, things, and not just knee jerk reactions to make liberals feel better and just say they accomplished something. You know what the biggest issue in Chicago is? The Cook County Democratic Party machine. That's a problem. That's the biggest problem. Where do you think the Chicago PD gets all of their gravitas from? These people are hand in glove. You know, everyone looks at this as, oh, it's the cops. It's their, pro-, you know, they're, it's, it, no, 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 no. The cops are the barricade between the working class and the upper class. That's what they are. Well, yeah, they started out as slave patrols and it's basically the same concept. It's to keep us in line. It's not to protect us. It's to protect wealth. And let me assure you, most police officers individually are good people. But when when you bring the, the police culture together, the code of silence, the things that go on, much like the mob, then this is what you're going to get. And what you're also going to get are the types of stories that will be highlighted in terms of all the terrible things that you will see in Chicago on a regular basis. You know, like people getting shot and killed and drug trafficking and sex trafficking and, you know, the fact that the public schools are not well taken care of and the fact that Obama decided to build his library on the backs of working class people on the south side of Chicago, you know, stuff like that. It cannot be lost on the fact that the decisions that are made are deliberately done to keep generations of people right where they are. In poverty. It's policy choices. Now, people will get out of there and people will not go the the life of crime. But let me tell you, it's very tempting when you don't have much. Yeah, I mean, that's what people have to understand. The majority of crime is crimes of poverty. That's just that's just how it is. It's, you know, and we wouldn't be in this scenario if we actually took care of our people. Metalopoly, I've said it many times. I have no problem with Second Amendment. I have no problem with gun owners, gun ownership. I don't have a problem with guns. I was raised in a house with guns. Austerity is is. as well as as our good friend Steve Grumbine likes to say, no, austerity is murder. So I will tell you this, Metalopoly, my my most current position on the gun issue is this. It's I believe in the Second Amendment. You want guns, you want firearms, I have at it. Have at it. You want them for your house, you want to protect your property, have your guns. You want a license to carry said gun out into the the, the public and out amongst me and my people. Now we're gonna start having some restrictions on in terms of registration things that you have to be licensed for, checks, rules, you know, that. That is where I start getting involved because now you're not about protecting your property. You're about bringing that out into the public. So that's when I start to get more in terms of like, yeah, I I think we need to get that sort of under control. But I do not support bans or mandates. I don't think they work. I think they're completely just, it's just, it's not going to happen. The fact of the matter is, and this is when it gets back to the people that you see leading the charge against the gun debate, as I always like to point out, Shannon Watts in particular, head of Moms Demand Action, is that very often the people that are the loudest champions for, when they say that they want gun reform, no. If you look at a lot of the commentary, the significant amount of them, they say they want AR-15s out, they want assault weapons out, blah, blah, blah. The fact is, they really don't want people to have anything past maybe a a, a pistol, maybe a rifle at most. They don't really want people to have firearms. And the reason that is, is because they come from a different class of society where they're not worried about crime being committed in their backyard. 
Their lives are much more pristine and safe than the people who work for a living and are trying to survive. And the temptations that are surrounding them constantly are there, left and right. And the fact of the matter is, we're a violent country. We're also a violent world, and people want to protect themselves. The most common form of gun usage in this country is to commit suicide. So you can protect yourself in public. You absolutely. just have to reg. I, I just think that there needs to be rules and restrictions in terms of you don't just go get to just do that and just start carrying it around. I think there need to be rules about that if you want to be licensed to carry. And I do think that that's completely reasonable. I have no problem with that. And, and if somebody has a problem with that, that's on them. As I, we you know. pointed out, this is the, it is the collapsing of society. And the most obvious example is a person who became yesterday's news the day after it happened because the shootings happen all the time now. And it isn't, you know, again, you can choose to live in fear. You can live your life and recognize the core problem here. So when a well-to-do you know, prep school kid who was a star athlete and had the world at his fingertips, sees his world collapse around him, career going bye-bye, and probably had ridiculous expectations from whatever blue blood family he came from decided, not only am I not going to accept the consequences for my failures, I am going to not only kill myself, I'm going to kill a lot of people along with me. And this has become the mindset of a lot of people. And you see the desperate people in society that do this type of thing. Danny, great to see you as always. To think that a person like this guy had everything and he decided to pick up a weapon and start shooting people, that should tell you everything you need to know. This is not about him being white. This is not about guns. This is about society is collapsing at the seams. That's what it is. Yeah. So until you're willing to address the fact... But banning assault weapons isn't going to solve the problem. Not going to solve shit. <laughs> Just remember, the number one mass shooting in any school in U.S. history, which was done at the which was done at VATEC, it just had its anniversary yesterday. Do you know what that kid, what that guy used to kill 34 people? Do you know what he used? Two Glocks. So I don't want to hear this. Oh, well, let's just ban assault weapons. No. It just doesn't. They'll it's just, just not practical. Get another form of, a, of of tactical weaponry in order to get the job well, done. And also that would only work if there weren't already as many out there that are out there. So they already exist. The market is there. And not only that, but they can be 3D made. The the cartridges, the, the magazines can be made. And we were at a printed. person's house who so we will not mention, but we saw a 3D gun made in real time. I mean, it's just like to, to ban them. It's not it's not going it's not going to do anything at this point. If you had banned them maybe 50 years ago and, and stayed with it and then maybe kept it from getting into the public, maybe but see, that ship sails. Danny, thank you, as always. You're Thanks, an amazing Danny. contributor to our show. It really means a lot. And Guy, you're absolutely right. This is different. This is the type of law that gets put into place where. That's when justifiable homicide comes into comes into question because of rules like stand your ground. Yeah. And the only places in the country that have rules like that are in the deep south. Yeah, because that's where that's, we're still living in the deep south. That's just that can't creating, be ignored. No, that's just creating a, a defense for murder. Correct. That's all it's doing. That's we've not. Seen it. Yeah, and it's and it is absolutely there is a complete racial component 
Agreed. that is that is applied on with standard that. ground I, I would yeah and it, it's totally that it's to, again like that's not what i'm talking about in in general when i say that i support you know the second amendment i'm not supporting racist laws and the enforcement of said second amendment you know danny comes on here and he says that he wants to hear from me you know i just want to say something to the people that are complaining that i have three houses yes i do listen I've had my same home in Burlington that I've had for over 30 years. It's a wonderful home. I like it. Uh, Jane says we need to update it. I'm like, I'm 80 years old. I'm going to live here. I'm going to die here. That's just the way it is. I have my little town home in D.C. It's very quaint. It's very nice. I think you'd like it. And then we were very fortunate to have a little vacation home that we, Jane, had inherited in Maine. It's wonderful. We get away. Every once in a while. It's so interesting to me that somebody who lives in some place like Vermont would ever need to get away to some place like Maine. I mean, it's just a little funny to me, I gotta say. Listen, it's a great place to go. I like to be on the lake. I like to relax. What do you think I read my books? I need to get over to Burlington and go check out the lake over there. The lake is wonderful. I know. I know. I think you would like it. I I invite everybody. You know, I was the number one mayor in America. I was the first mayor in America to agree to a gay pride march. I know. Also I supported haven't. civil unions in Vermont. That is true. But apparently, according to Hillary and a lot of other people, I'm not good for the case. I, I don't know. I, you know that's, uh, it's unfortunate. But uh, I think we're doing a really good job. And if you haven't read my book, It Is Okay to Be Angry at Capitalism, with co-author John Nichols, who I saw was on your show. It's very nice. I think you should definitely read that book. And of course, if you are so inclined to become a supporter of generational change for $5 a month, which is how much I like to spend on my Daily lunch sandwiches, it, it definitely gets the job done. I get myself a little pickle and, of course, a bag of chips and a glass of water, and it's really nice. That's enough for me. Um, I'm, I'm not greedy for an expensive meal. Sometimes I splurge, and that splurging would involve me spending $10 on a lunch, which, of course, you're becoming a patron for this wonderful channel if you would like. But $25, you're getting a little expensive now. That's a little above board for me. But for you, that might work. So consider becoming a wonderful supporter of this wonderful channel. You're doing a good job. So good to see you, Jane. Okay. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> I'll, I'll place for you. Well, now I might have to refill for you. You've been hitting it like a thousand. I know. I'm in a good way right now. I'm in a good way. I have like copious amounts of cannabis right now. So I've got to get through it. And by the way, guys, sort of like I got to get through this stuff. If you support civil liberties, you got to support them all. If you support free speech, you got to support it all the way. Even when it's not, even when it's speech you don't like. Actually, that's the whole point of the rule. If all we talked about was rainbows and unicorns, we wouldn't need a first amendment. You know, we wouldn't need that. The whole point is to protect the things we don't like. That's the point. I saw something recently that Ricky Gervais did, and he has said it before, and I I love him for people. I don't care. I criticize all you want about different things. He's one of my favorite atheists. But he makes this comment that I think is so profound when he's like, how arrogant of someone to think that they should be able to just go through life without ever having their feelings hurt or ever being offended. And as if you being offended should be the determination of whether or not something exists, like your feelings. And it's so true. It's like this arrogance that we're entitled to just never feel offended. You know what? First of all, I really can't think of anything that offends me. I really can't. Um, 
But the Maybe idea, well, corruption and like that stuff is offensive. Okay, fine. But I'm talking in terms of like things where it would be like offend my sensibilities, you know, like or, or against decorum or something like that. And it's just so interesting to me that people truly believe that their personal feelings about things should have any bearing whatsoever on what we're all the rest of us are allowed to see, hear, participate in or engage in or print or whatever. Like that's just, it's bizarre to me that anyone feels that their personal opinions should dictate what I can see or have access to. It's crazy. Carney, thank you as well. Thank you all for tuning in this evening. Remember to smash the like button, share, subscribe, do all those wonderful things. I don't even mind hate speech. I think people should say whatever they want. Now, if somebody wants to come and throttle you because you're a bigot, that's the natural and logical consequences of your behavior. Yeah, right. natural order. <laughs> but absolutely, it's, if you if somebody wants to walk around yelling "Jews shall not replace us," have at it, man. And if you know a Jewish person wants to lay you out on your ass, so be it. But I don't care if people want to say that. I, in fact, I like it because it really shows us who people are. If people are prevented from saying that, then we don't know who the bigots are. I'd much rather know. So they could say whatever they want to say. Like, I don't, again, I don't understand. What people say, unless you're inciting violence, does not offend me. With that said, thank you all. Appreciate you. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.